sometimes the very decision that you need to make in order to be free, in order to be made whole, in order to be well again, is the very decision that you won't make or that you cannot make for yourself. You believe that? Who's already with me? Who's like, yeah, that's been my experience. Okay, some of you need convincing. That's great. That's why we're here. Sometimes the very decision you need to make to be free is the very decision you won't make or you can't make for yourself. Uh, author Frederick Buechner describes just such an experience from his own life story in his memoir, Telling Secrets, writing this. What happened was that one of our daughters began to stop eating. There was nothing scary about that at first, but then as months went by, it did become scary. Anorexia nervosa is the name of the sickness she was suffering from. No rational argument, no dire medical warning, no pleading or cajolery or bribery would make this young woman I loved eat normally again, but only seemed to strengthen her determination not to. She was more afraid of gaining weight than she was afraid of death itself because that was what it came to finally. Three years were about as long as the sickness lasted in its most intense form. And then finally, when she had to be hospitalized, a doctor called one morning to say that unless they started feeding her against her will, she would die. Just try to imagine that if you can. So confused, so, so broken was this young woman's thinking that she was unable to choose for herself one of the most basic necessities for sustaining life, eating. Now that is perhaps a, a more extreme example. Uh, uh, and, and if you yourself know uh, or have suffered under an eating disorder of any kind or you know someone who has, you know that the dark, powerful allure of its lie. But as we continue this morning in our teaching series after God's own heart, I think we see here an equally incomprehensible decision in our passage today in the life of David. A decision essential for him to regain his throne. A decision essential for his own survival that David is simply incapable of making for himself. He can't do it. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why David can't make this decision for himself. And we're going to get into that as we dig in this morning, but the reason why this matters, why, why should we take time to do this, why it's so important for us to look at this, is not so that we could sit up in the gallery as, as clinical observers just kind of looking down on David's incomprehensible decision and behavior. No, 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 no. We need, we need to look at this together this morning because in, in, in big ways and small ways, we need to understand how we can act in this exact same way ourselves. And at times, not always, but at times, just like David, need the, the severe mercy of God to choose for us the good that we will not or cannot choose for ourselves. In order to help us see wh what that could look like in our lives from the life of this man after God's own heart, I want to show you just two things from our passage today. We're going to talk about being saved from our adversary and then saved from ourselves. Saved from our adversary and then saved from ourselves. So if you could open up that passage in your Bible, keep it open and follow along with me. 2 Samuel chapter 18. 
follow along with me as we look at this example in the life of David of God's gracious action in the face of our confused, conflicted thinking. Okay, so let's talk about this first of all, being saved from our adversary. Saved from our adversary. Look there at verse 1 of chapter 18. Now, just to give us a bit of context before we dig into this passage, particularly if you weren't here last week where Nathan uh, helped us see how it was that David's son Absalom had come to stage this military coup against his father, and David and his family had to flee for their lives. Um, let's just say a lot has happened. A lot has happened between uh, when Nathan confronted David back in chapter 12 about his adultery with Bathsheba, the killing of her husband Uriah, to this place here in chapter 18 where David and his men are now about to go to war with Absalom in order to regain the throne in Jerusalem. The important thing to know here is that in the course of the story, because David has very widely, wisely been able to place an insider of sorts in Absalom's chief council, David was able to get away. He was able to actually flee and get to a stronghold of safety from which he could fright, fight. There's a, a city just across the Jordan River called Mahanaim. Probably not saying that right, but Mahanaim, I'm going to call it this morning. This is a place where he had been able to escape to. And what this enabled the, the David to do now is to draw the battle into this forest of Ephraim, mentioned there in verse 6. The forest of Ephraim, where in a forest, a thick forest, think about this, Absalom's huge numbers are now nullified. It doesn't matter that he's got so many men anymore, and David's uh, a superior skill and experience of his soldiers are now going to be able to prevail because they're more used to, they're more trained soldiers. And so these two things working together are going to allow David to be victorious. Now, in the opening verses of 18, it's clear that David has learned at least something from his previous uh, sin with uh, Bathsheba. Uh, he, seeing one of the key reasons that all this trouble began is because he failed to go out with his army. When the rest of the armies were going out, he stayed back at home, and that's where the trouble began. So you see there in verse 2, David tells the troops, he's like, don't worry, guys. I'm coming with you this time. I'm not going to make that mistake again, to which his commanders kind of, Look him over. David's not the, the young warrior that he once was. And they're kind of like, yeah, you know what, what, you know what will be good? Why don't you stay back here? This time we do want you to stay back here. Just kind of hold down the fort, protect the, you know, the city while we go out. And David is not initially with this, but by verse 3, he's convinced uh, that, that they, they help him to see that really this isn't just a battle against two armies. You, David, are actually the sole target of Absalom and his army. And if we have to flee, if we have to retreat, there's no way we're going to be able to protect you because everyone's going to be shooting at you. We could all flee, but they're just shooting at you. And so he, he kind of buys into this. He's like, yeah, actually, that's true. So he's agreeing to stay home. But when we get to verse 4, look there with me. David sends out these three generals, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, which can we just say those are pretty awesome names? Super. These are like the first Avenger kind of names here. Joab, Abishai, Ittai. Sounds awesome. Anyway, he sends out these three generals. He divides the army into threes, into, into thirds, sends them out. And as the, the troops, as they're being led out of the city, David's standing there at the gate, and he gives them truly confusing encouragement to these troops as they file past him. Look at verse 4, the second half of it there. It says, So the king stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and thousands, 
The king commanded Joab, Abishai, Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. Now we've got to stop there for a minute and talk about this, right? Because on the one hand, David's exp- he's expressing a great amount of confidence in his army, isn't he? He's basically saying, hey, like, when you win, as you're winning, be gentle with Absalom. So, I mean, he's kind of saying, I, I, I know you're going to win. That's great. But on the other, much, much bigger hand, what, what is he even talking about? How, what is this nonsense that he's even saying? And just to be clear, when David says, deal gently with the young man Absalom, he's not saying, hey, kill him quickly, make sure he doesn't suffer too much. As you see later in verse 12, the whole army clearly understands David's command here to mean, I want you to protect Absalom. I want you to spare him. Which, I mean, considering the fact Absalom is a bad dude. If he had a chance right now, he would cut David's throat where he stood. And not to mention Absalom, he's the one that's led this whole military coup against David that's forced him to flee. So giving all this, I mean, this is one of the most incomprehensible commands ever uttered by a king deploying his army. Uh, 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 defeat Absalom, but don't defeat him. Uh, uh, do whatever is necessary to stop this rebellion and return me to the throne, except the one thing necessary to make that possible. It's just like, it doesn't make sense, the command, what he's asking. This would be literally like uh, the U.S. military after the attacks of 9-11, saying to them, listen, do everything necessary to neutralize the terrorist threat of Al-Qaeda, but go easy on Osama bin Laden. Like, those two things aren't possible. You, you need to kind of pick one, actually. That's literally the, 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 the level of what we're talking about here. And this is exactly the kind of confused, conflicted thinking I was referring to when we began this morning. In, in any other circumstance, David would have carried out exactly what was necessary in order to put down this military threat to his kingdom without hesitation. And yet here, almost exactly like Beekner's daughter suffering with anorexia, David can't choose the thing necessary for his own survival. He can't choose it. Why? What's, what's going on? Well, some have, have, have rightly said, I think it's because Absalom is still David's son. Okay? No matter what he's done, this is his son. And so David's fatherly instinct, his father's heart towards Absalom is just overriding his judgment of what he knows needs to take place. And I think that's certainly a big part of what we see here that's preventing David from choosing what's necessary. But if you remember back to God's curse that he spoke through the prophet Nathan when uh, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed, remember the the curse said, the sword will never depart from your house now. Uh, A calamity would be raised up from within his old household. I think because of that, I think what's also clouding David's judgment here is that he feels personally responsible for what's going on. It's like, this is because of me. And so as strange as it sounds to us today, and I'm sure it sounded strange to the soldiers then, David's confusing command here, I think, was really a a reflection of of his divided loyalties, which were only magnified by his feelings of guilt and shame. He's He's just being pulled in two different ways. So as we keep reading here, David's army heads out under this impossible command, and as he expected, they they make easy work of the soldiers who are under Absalom's command, 
But when we get to verse 9, look now, bear with me. We get to this classic scene from this narrative where Absalom, he's riding away on his donkey through the forest, and and he catches his head. Most uh, commentators believe it was actually Absalom's thick, beautiful hair, of which he was really proud of, catches in the branches of an oak tree that he's riding under and literally leaves him like just suspended there in air, hanging by his hair, unable to get away, unable to free himself as, as, as he stops and his donkey keeps going forward. One of David's men happens to see this. He sees what goes on in verse 10 there, and he reports back to Joab, who replies incredulously, says, what, you saw him? Why didn't you strike him down to the ground right there? Then I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But this is not this soldier's first rodeo either. And he carefully replies to Joab, even if a thousand shekels were weighed out in my hands, I would not lift my hand against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you, Abishai and Ittai, to protect the young man Absalom for my sake. If I put my life in jeopardy, had nothing, and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Basically, he's saying, like, if I did cut him down and the king found out, you'd be like, yeah, you see what he did? Like, that's what, don't tell me you'd give me a shekels and a belt. Like, you would totally just leave me, leave me hanging out to dry. But in verse 14, we see Joab the pragmatist, who, as one commentator noted, just as he was told by David not to let it trouble him, when he was ordered to deal with Uriah, when he became a threat to the king, now he doesn't let him, it trouble him either when he takes three javelins and thrusts them into Ab- Absalom's heart as he hangs helpless from this tree. It's a bloody business. And absolutely contrary to what David had expressed, his expressed desire. But what's also undeniably true is that Joab had chosen the necessary thing for David. He chose what David could not choose for himself, but he needed in order to survive. And finally, having delivered David from his, abs- from his adversary, Joab sounds the trumpet in verse 16, signaling victory in the battle. And we'll consider David's response to Joab's choosing on his behalf in a moment, but I just want to pause here before that and consider more deeply what is it that so handicapped this man after God's own heart's ability to choose what he knew to be necessary for his freedom from this adversary. Because I think in doing that, it's going to help you and I understand better how it is that we often struggle in the same way ourselves when we face adversaries. So as we said, David, the things for, for David, the things that confused his thinking, that left him unable to choose what was necessary, were divided loyalties and feelings of guilt and shame. Divided loyalties feelings of guilt and shame. His, his loyalties were divided between what his head knew was necessary, a course of action as the king, and what his heart wanted as a father. But then on top of that, David also carried this heavy load of guilt and shame, which caused him to take responsibility for sins that weren't his own. He wasn't leading this rebellion. He wasn't doing all this stuff. But he took on the responsibility for these things. And he saw himself, I think, ultimately as deserving of suffering which I think is evidenced by his command, deal gently with Absalom for my sake, he says. (coughs) Deal gently with Absalom for my sake. Basically saying, because I'm the one who truly deserves to suffer. I deserve to suffer, so don't do any harm to him. It's, It's me. It should be me that suffers. 
And the result was that David chose to deal gently with something, and in this case, someone, that needed to be cut off completely. He chose him to deal gently with them. And in our own lives today, we can lose the ability to choose for ourselves what we know to be necessary for the exact same reason. This can happen in any number of places, but I want to look particularly at how this happens in our spiritual lives. When it comes to the problem of divided loyalties, let's look at that first. Where this usually presents itself for a Christian person is with the ongoing battle between the Spirit of God in you and sinful desires, sinful patterns in your life that have yet to be transformed by God's Spirit. It's what the Bible often refers to as the flesh. The ways we continue to struggle and, and have to grow uh, uh, which, which, by the way, doesn't mean you're not a Christian. I'm not saying you're not a Christian if you keep struggling. It just means it's showing the reality that when you become a child of God, you start just that way as a child. And, and the whole point of following Jesus through your life, continuing to engage in community with other Christians, is that we might mature, we might grow up in Christian maturity. But whenever one of those yet to be transformed desires or patterns shows up, and that's going to look different for every single one of us, you're going to be presented with a choice that you have to make. On one side, the choice is going to be the path that God is wanting to direct you down, that he's going to want to be leading you towards himself that's ultimately leading to life. And the other path is going to be a path that maybe you're just more used to walking down, maybe it's the path you feel more tempted to walking down in that moment, which leads you further away from God and ultimately leads to death. You've got the choice between these two paths, and the point is, while it might just seem obvious, self-evident, oh, I'll choose the path to life, no, no you won't, <laughs> because the reality is that the point, uh, the, the degree to which our loyalties remain divided is the degree to which you will be incapable of choosing that path, even if you know intellectually, theologically, that this path is superior. You still won't choose it a lot of times. You've got to remember, like David wasn't unaware. Hey, Absalom's trying to kill me. He's trying to take over my throne. He knew that. He just couldn't choose what was necessary to be free from his adversary. He couldn't choose the, the right path, even though he knew it was the right path to walk. Add to that, then, the influence of guilt and shame in our lives. Guilt, I think we could say, ultimately being a failure to believe the gospel. That my sin, all the guilt and for my sin is being taken by Jesus and his death on the cross for me. When we carry that guilt forward for things that God has forgiven us from, we, we fail to believe the gospel and what it does to us. And then shame. Shame being the voice that seeks to define you by your past. This thing happened to you and so that's therefore what you are. Uh, uh, uh. One example of this could be uh, someone who was sexually abused as a child. And they carry that shame with them of what happened to them so that as they grow older, they're not someone who was sinned against as a child. They are an abused person now. I am a dirty, stained person now because of what happened to me. I'm not deserving of being with someone who's pure because I'm not pure. And really, what's the point of trying to live a pure life? Because impure things happen to me. So what's the point of trying? We define by that past action. That's what shame can many times do to us. And all together then, these two influences, divided loyalties, feelings of guilt and shame, can easily lead anyone to deal gently with sinful actions, thoughts, patterns in your life that even though you know you need to be free from, you continue to indulge in, you continue to carry with you and hold on to and not turn away from. 
some examples of this could be the, uh, a physically abusive spouse. A physically abusive spouse, that person doesn't need to just read some books on anger management and, and just kind of tone it down a bit. No, they need radical transforming interventions on the outside so that that never happens again. Uh, someone who is struggles with a drug or alcohol addiction, they don't need to just kind of change the patterns. So I'm only going to drink on the weekends now. I'll only get high on even days of the week. No, no, they need to have a, a radical shift away from these things that are destroying them in order to be free. And yet, divided loyalties, again, influence of guilt and shame in circumstances like these and a thousand others like them will make even the strongest person among us ultimately and utterly incapable of choosing what will bring freedom. And it will lead you to justify continued indulgence, lead you to deal gently, just as David did here, with the very thing that's threatening to destroy you. And in the end, what we see in this passage is not a man after God's own heart who, who came to understand the choice he needed to make and he trusted God by faith. No. We see a man after God's own heart who needed the decision that was essential for his survival and ultimately for the survival of his kingdom that he could not make and had to be made for him. And as you think about the severe mercy that David needed to be freed in his life, I wonder if every single person in here this morning doesn't need to look at our own lives and honestly ask the question, where am I dealing gently with sin right now? Where am I dealing gently with a sin pattern, a struggle in my life that I know I need to cut off, I need to completely turn away from, but I'm unable or I'm unwilling to do it? What's that thing for you? I want to be careful and... and it's not always the case. It will not always look like this. This is a unique example, but it's a true example. God does work this way sometimes. We clearly see in our passage, sometimes, out of his great love and mercy towards his children, God will send a Joab into your life to choose for you what he knows you need most, but what you cannot or will not choose for yourself. If God were to send a a Joab into your life today. What would they choose for you? For some of us, we can't answer that question properly because we don't understand our father properly. And we believe that God is this, uh, he wants to take away things that, are, that we love. He wants to just take away the best thing from us because that's the experience maybe we've had from our earthly fathers. And so we don't trust his goodness. Learn from this example here what God frees David from is something that's threatening to kill him. It's going to destroy him. God's desire isn't to come in and take things away from you that you love because he wants your life to be miserable. He's freeing David here. What would God free you from today that you're unwilling or unable to free yourself from? That is his desire because of his great love and mercy towards you. Okay, so that's being saved from our adversary. But given how unwilling or how unable David was to make the decision necessary in order to be saved from Absalom, how do you suppose David will respond to Joab's intervention? Uh, is he going to be angry, furious? Is he going to be grateful, uh, uh, feel relief? No. No, sadly, what we see as we keep reading here is that along with 
being saved from his adversary. David also needed to be saved from himself. That's what we'll look at next year. Saved from ourselves. Saved from ourselves. Now, if you look at verses 19 through 27, there's a whole section here, this really interesting kind of side story presented where Joab has to now send word back to David about the result of the battle. He needs to tell him what happened. Of course, this is pre uh, uh, social media, pre cell phones. You can't just let him know somehow. You can't send a pigeon out to show him. He's, he's got to send runners. They would send these runners, great guys who would just run back and tell them, herald the news, hey, this is what happened in the victory. Uh, here, the result of this whole section here is that <coughs> um, <coughs> Joab sends two different runners to bring back the news to David, um, one of them being a foreigner, a Cushite soldier, and the other is a man named Ahmaz, who was the son of the priest and apparently a really fast runner. And Joab doesn't want to initially send Ahmaz because he knows already David's not going to be happy about this. He's not going to be pleased with the news. But because Ahmaz, he just keeps pressing. He keeps uh, 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 so strongly insisting, no, no, let me go. Let me be the one. Joab finally submits and lets him run, presuming that the Cushite soldier he'd already dispatched earlier would reach him first anyway. So he's like, yeah, yeah, okay, you go run too. But Ahimaaz actually overtakes the Cushite. He takes a different route. He gets there first. And as he arrives, look now at verse 28. He says as he gets to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. He said, praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted their hand against my lord, the king. But although the news is, is good, hey, great news, the battle is won. David reveals now the true purpose of his conflicted heart in verse 29, asking only one question. He doesn't say, hey, how many soldiers did we lose? How, how did this, how's, how's, how are the men doing? He doesn't ask anything. He asks one question, verse 29. Is the young man Absalom safe? And it's just, you can almost... You can almost just sense this like uh, feeling as he asks this question. You can almost read the embarrassment and shame as well in Ahamaz's reply in the second half of verse 29. He basically just gives him some kind of non-answer. He's like, oh, you know, there was, there was some confusion as I was leaving. I didn't see what it was, but I'm not, not sure exactly. Because he realizes, man, this is actually what he really cares about. And so David, realizing, okay, I'm not going to get any further information from you, is like, okay, just stand over here. They saw there was another runner coming, so he's like, I'll just wait for the second guy. When the Cushite soldier uh, arrives, he delivers much the same news in verse 31. But when David immediately diverts to the very same line of questioning, verse 32, he says uh, once again, oh, is, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite soldier, now here, he's clearly unaware of all the freight, all the baggage, that comes along with David's question. And so he just boldly says to David, verse 32, second half here, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm him be like that young man. Oops. And David is utterly shattered by the news. Ground completely taken out from under him. He cannot recover from this news. We read in verse 33, the king was shaken. And he went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, it's no longer the young man, it's my son. 
my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. And as you keep reading into chapter 19 now, starting at verse 2 there, you see the result of David's response is that the victory his men won for him that day was turned into mourning. Instead of returning to celebration and thanks and, and fanfare, the soldiers who had risked their lives to fight and free David were now forced to sneak back into their homes, verse 3 tells us, like men who are ashamed when they have not been victorious. The whole thing has been flipped on its head. But verse 1 of chapter 19 tells us that Joab was informed of how David responded. And in verses 5 through 8, after having delivered David from his adversary, we see now that Joab must deliver David from himself. Look at verse 5. It says, Joab went to the house of the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men, or I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. He's almost threatening his own rebellion, isn't he? It's like, you get out there now. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth until now. Now, clearly Joab is, is deeply provoked. He is angry at David's response. But what's also clear is that Joab sees hey, the very same things that made David unable to choose a necessary response to Absalom initially have now made David unable to choose a necessary reply, a necessary way to respond to the news of Absalom's death. I mean, it seems as almost as if David's divided loyalties and feelings of guilt and shame have only been amplified by the news. And yet Joab sees a real threat here. He's like, everyone is going to desert you if you don't change and switch this right now get up off the floor and get out there everyone's going to abandon you and it's going to be even worse than any other thing that's happened to you before and like a parent who's tried to respond graciously three thousand times at least to their kids fighting in the back seat about whether one is happening to breathe the air on the other person's side he just he just loses it he just explodes he has just had enough and he comes in and confronts David in a way that probably would have seen him court-martialed any other time but here today on this day saves David from himself and incredibly we see in verse 8 this day is saved for a second time as we read this so the king got up took his seat in the gateway and when the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway they all came before him Now, I fully recognize that in our modern 21st century entitled context where everyone's truth is their own, nobody's allowed to challenge anybody's thinking or way they believe, this, so much of this sounds wrong to us, right? So much of it's like, how could he? That's not, that's not right. I mean, whether or not it was the wisest choice, wisest course of action, David's the king, right? He'd given an order. Absalom was to be protected. And now, not only has Joab completely just disregarded that command, and taken Absalom's life anyway. Now he's even 
forbidding David to mourn the loss of his son for a day. It's like, no, you're not mourning that. Get up and get out there. But as incomprehensible as this all might sound to us, I think what Joab says there in the verse 6 in particular really shines a powerful light on what's going on here, what, what the true problem is with David's otherwise very natural response to the death of his son. You see, he says there, you, you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Or as we saw with the, the soldiers having to sneak back into their houses, you, you've taken a situation that should be celebrated and you've turned it into a mourning, into a, a funeral. Well, I already said in my last point that, that it's not always the case, but sometimes out of his great love and mercy towards us, God will send a Joab into our lives to choose for us what he knows we need most but cannot or will not choose for ourselves. But what we see here clearly in the life of David is that just as we fail to choose what we need to know, freedom, we can also choose to fail, we can also fail to choose the right response to that freedom when we have it. In the same way that David shows love towards the one who wanted to destroy him and hatred towards the ones who had just saved his life, we can respond in the exact same way, usually towards God or usually to the instrument through which he brought about that freedom towards us. We respond towards them negatively, uh, aggressively, angrily, whatever it is, as though they've done something horrible to us. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it was a relationship. A relationship you knew that's... This needs to end. I can't, I can't keep going in this. But you couldn't bring yourself to cut it off. Maybe it was a, a pattern of, of lust or pride or anger that you knew was going to destroy you, but you just continued to deal gently with. You could never just make the turn and just say, I'm not, God help me, I'm not going to do this anymore. When God sends a Joab into your life, either through circumstances or through a literal person, and no, they're not going to be called Joab, when God sends this Joab into your life to choose for us what we cannot or will not choose for ourselves out of his love and mercy towards us, our confused, conflicted thinking and our hearts can often and, and do often mourn. They mourn when they should be celebrating. We can weep for the very things that were threatening to destroy us. We can harbor bitterness, even even bring disgrace on the God who loved us enough to free us, but we could not choose to free ourselves from it. Why would you take this from me? As pastor and author Tim Keller once wrote, God will only give you in prayer what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. And my question for you as it relates to all this is this morning, are you celebrating? Do you celebrate the freedom that God has accomplished for you? First of all, in your salvation, but then in a hundred other ways that he has and will bring about that freedom in your life today. Or are you continuing to mourn? Are you nursing a bitter heart against God or the instrument of his freedom for the things that he's graciously freed you from? To do that, at least the latter part there, Really, as Joab said, it truly is to love those who hate you. To, to continue to hold on and mourn for that thing God has freed you from is to, to love those who would destroy you and hate the one who truly loves you, who loves you enough to choose for you what you can't choose for yourself.
I don't know where this has spoken to you today, where this has touched you, maybe where it's encouraged you, maybe where it's challenged you. Perhaps the Spirit of God is revealing something in your life right now that you've known for a while. You've needed to let go of, you needed to cut off and make that turn towards God's path. And, and, and this passage really for you is going to be more of an Abigail, an Abigail that, that redirects your, the orientation of your heart back towards God so that it can be fully towards him before he needs to send a Joab to graciously choose for you what you won't choose for yourself. I pray that that would be true in some of our lives today. And yet I think it's important in, in any discussion of something like this, however, to say this, and I need you to hear me clearly. God is the one who sends Joab, not you. God is the one who sends Joab, not you. And what I mean by that is this. Just because you see a harmful pattern in someone's life, this passage does not give you a, a justification to go and just start like cutting off things in their life, freeing them from stuff that you think they need to be freed from. I'm not speaking about parents, of course, we, that we have a specific responsibility, yeah, to make choices for people. Uh, uh, this passage does not give you justification to just start going into people's lives and ripping out stuff for them that you know they need to be freed from. That's not, that's not here. God may call you to be an Abigail who redirects or even a Nathan who confronts, but there, I don't see anything in this passage, anything in the text that would indicate that Joab chose to be a Joab for God to David. That's, that's not what was happening, if, you, if that makes sense to you. He didn't choose to be a Joab. God just simply used, God chose Joab to use him that way in David's life to bring about a freedom that he couldn't bring about for himself. And the reason God can do that and only God can do that is because he truly knows what's best for us. As we've seen in our passage, he knows even better than we know ourselves what's best for us. And he will always work in the interests of carrying out those good purposes in our lives. That's his commitment to us, his faithfulness to us. He will bring about, do whatever is necessary to bring out those purposes in our lives. And listen, I know that doesn't mean that that's always going to look rosy. It's not always going to be happy, joyous things. At, at, at times, it could feel excruciating, even cruel, the way that he works to bring about his good purposes in our lives. But we can have confidence that they really still are truly good purposes for us. How can we know that? Well, as the Apostle Paul famously says in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, he says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if our God would choose new life in Jesus for us when we were helpless, when we were powerless to choose that for ourselves, how much more can we trust everything else that he lovingly chooses to free us from? We can trust him. He, he knows what he's doing. He has our good in mind. Just as Paul goes on to say later in Philippians 3, he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish 
that I may gain Christ. And that is the goal. That we would gain him. Whatever we may have to lose in the process. It's worth it. And it is his good purpose for us.